This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Her family had no closure on this. You think it's somebody that she knew? I do. Maybe she had an affair. And the person, for some reason, wanted to cover that up. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Vicki Irwin is an author in St. Louis, and she loves a good historical true crime story. There has been a ton of crime in Missouri. It seems like a very innocent state to me for some reason. I would say, no, it is not. One of the reasons that people talk about there's so much crime in Missouri is that it's all related to the bitterness of the Civil War and it has carried over. And I have to admit, some of the cases that I have read that are as recent as the late 20th century have overtones of that in it. During and before the Civil War, there was certainly the pro-Union, pro-Confederacy divide. And it was brother against brother many times. And that has continued to divide and color things that have happened even today. The racial issues, perhaps, even that we have today could be traced back to that time. This is a mystery. So who was Ms. Mortimer? Her name was Margaret Mortimer. She was 42 years old. She was married. They had no children. She was a very prominent woman socially and civically in the small central Missouri town of Mexico. Mexico is about 100 miles west of St. Louis and close to Columbia, Missouri, which is the home of the University of Missouri. Mrs. Mortimer was renowned as a musician and singer. She'd performed in New York. She'd performed in St. Louis. In fact, she had performed in St. Louis just two weeks before her murder. She was certainly known for her musical abilities. Her husband was 52. She was 42. She had not grown up in Mexico. Her father and mother had moved there for business reasons, and she had joined them with her husband. Now, let's talk about the time period. What year are we talking about? And where sort of are we in the world? And where is this area? That's an interesting thing, because one of the things I think about this particular situation is that it reflects so many mores of the time period. It was 1937, during the Depression, in this small town, which 
there were, you know, of course, hardships. But all in all, Mexico did not have a terrible time during the Depression because there was a firebrick factory, two firebrick factories there that were very successful and continued to hold out employment to people. What's a firebrick factory? Okay, a firebrick. For, for me, the little okay. person. <laughs> That's all right. And I, you know, having grown up there, a firebrick factory is kind of second nature to me. They make a special kind of brick that they used at the time in the steel industry. They were also used for the launch of rockets, like the launch pads for rockets. So Mexico was always very proud of that, that that was part of all the lunar and all of the space exploration because their bricks would be there on the launching pad for that. It takes a special kind of clay to make a fire brick. And that particular area of the state of Missouri was known for that kind of clay. It was kind of like oil. I like to liken it to that. If they found a deposit of clay that could be used in fire brick on your property, it meant money for your family. So if you weren't a family involved with the fire brick manufacturing industry, what are you doing in Mexico, Missouri? You're working in a factory. Sometimes you would be out excavating the clay to bring in, to make the fire bricks out of. Wow, so this is truly, this town is built around this factory. This, yes, and when the steel industry died, the fire brick industry died, and the town has suffered greatly because of that. But in 1937, right. it's still rolling along. Everybody has a job. People do have jobs. Not everybody, because that's one of the issues in this case. Not everybody has a job, but there is a big feral works project going on to brick the streets. The streets had been still unpaved, and they had gotten a federal work project to brick the streets. So there was work, and things, things were not as bad there as they could have been. So what does Mr. Mortimer do? Mr. Mortimer went to law school and he had practiced law with a very prominent firm in New York City. Uh, some of the other people in his firm went on to great political careers. He was very active in the Democratic Party there. And he was a personal friend of Alfred E. Smith, who was governor of New York. His wife came to Mexico for an extended visit with her mother and father when her father moved his company, which was a company that made banking forms. When he moved the company to Mexico because of labor problems he'd had in other places, she came for an extended visit and she really liked it. And she convinced her husband finally to come join her in Mexico and work with her father. And they actually lived with her mother and father. So he is an attorney. He's right. an attorney, and a would, prominent attorney. And yet they decided to live with her parents? They did. They why, did. Why is that? It was a very large home on a street of other large homes. And oftentimes families were living together. Multi-generational families were living together. Her father was very ill. I, you know, and I'm not sure if that had anything to do so with maybe it. Maybe she was a caretaker, possibly. Well, they had they had hired help that did that. Wow. Okay. Because <laughs> they were a very prominent family. This is absolutely upper class. Very. For, particularly for Mexico. For Mexico, yes, absolutely, yes. What is the crime like during this time period? Do you have any ideas? You know, there was minor crime like like vandalism, but nothing violent. So set up the day where everything changes for the Mortimer family. It was the day before Thanksgiving, 1937. Mrs. Mortimer had gone to have her hair done. 
they did not own a car. Mr. Mortimer felt it was less expensive to take a taxi everywhere than it was to own a car. So he did not own a car. It was only six blocks from where they lived to the center of downtown. She'd gotten her hair fixed. She had gone to a drugstore and she'd bought some soap. And this is in the afternoon, I'm assuming. This is the late afternoon. Four o'clock, five o'clock. Between 4.30 and, and 6. She went to the jewelry store. She bought some flowers and she bought six silver teaspoons. She went to a place called Scott's store and she shopped there. She bought a handkerchief. She stopped at a newsstand and she bought some magazines and then she proceeded to walk home. Behind her, a young lady who was 16 years old, whose name was either Ama or Emily. I saw it various ways in the different stories I read. Which is, as we know, the older the paper, the more unreliable it is. Oh my goodness. So many differences in some of this stuff. So her name was either Ama Jewel or Emily Jewel. She was walking behind Mrs. Mortimer up the street and then she passed her. She was walking faster than she was. Ama, which was the name they used in the local paper. So I'm kind of relying on that yeah. simply because I feel like they would know better. Right. Ama heard a scream. Then she heard a muffled scream. Then she heard three muffled thuds. It terrified her and she took off running home. When she got home, she told her mother about it, but they did not have a telephone. So she did not report it to anyone. I'm guessing looking back, she probably regrets that. They interviewed her several times, but never in her interview did she say anything to that effect. So Alma doesn't report it. That's between 5.30 and 6 that Alma passes her and she hears these horrible noises. Mr. Mortimer has already arrived at home. He has walked from his office home. So he, he is at home and they're preparing for dinner. And it's very uncommon, but Mrs. Mortimer does not show up for dinner. At first, they just think, oh, she got involved in a conversation. She's visiting with somebody. You know, she stopped by someone's house, something like that. They were a little concerned, but not concerned enough to start calling around for her yet. They went ahead and, and sat down to dinner. They did have out-of-town guests from San Diego, and quite interestingly, their names were Mr. and Mrs. James Irwin, which I am Mrs. James Irwin. <laughs> and when I read that, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, I have to know more about this case. <laughs> <laughs> You're meant to do this story. Yeah. Anyways, they had guests. Because this is the day before Thanksgiving. This is the day before Thanksgiving. Right. Of course, there's Thanksgiving preparations going on everywhere. About, let's see, she had been there. So I would say about 7.30, some boys showed up at the Mortimer house and they said, someone's been badly hurt. Can you come and help to Mr. Mortimer? There was a college, women's college that had closed. Nobody was there, you know, as far as college students were concerned right across the street. He thought that probably some boys had been over in the college and that one of them had gotten hurt since it was young men. So he comes and he's standing on the sidewalk with some neighbors who said there's a man hurt in the backyard of the house next door to them, which is the Holtman house. It was being renovated. Nobody lived there, but the Holtmans had come by to check on some work. Are these like the houses aren't you know close together? I mean, it, again, it's a very nice neighborhood, so the lawns are large. Okay. So there's and there's a driveway in between the two houses, at least you know 
plus the yards. The Mortimer house has been torn down since this all happened. And so I've never seen the Mortimer house. I moved there later than that. I, you know, it was never there when I was there. But the houses are still a nice distance apart. So they wait on the sidewalk for the police officers to come before they go check on what happened. When the Holtmans came to check, it was Mr. and Mrs. Holtman and their son. They had flashlights and they heard moaning. And like I said, Mr. Holtman looked out and he saw this body laying in the driveway behind his house and sent the boys to get Mr. Mortimer. He went next door to another home on the other side to call the police. And so the police were on their way. And so at what point does Mr. Mortimer walk to the back? When the police arrive, they all go back to check on the condition and on who this person is. Why don't they go sooner if they hear moaning? That's, I know. I I have never understood that either, but they did not go. None of them, the Holtmans did not go. They just decided to wait for the police to come. And Mr. Holtman's the one who saw the body, heard some moaning. And he thought it was a man. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. And so when they get back there, of course, Mr. Mortimer says, that's my wife. And he uh, sinks to his knees. He tries to wipe the blood off her face. She's Her face is blood covered. He straightens her clothing because her clothing's been disarranged. She's wearing a dress. Her underwear is tossed to the side. Her dress is pulled up. He tries to cover her and... For modesty. For modesty, probably partly. You know, clean the blood off her face and see what he can do until the ambulance get there. Because at that point, of course, they've also called an ambulance. And she's still alive. She's still so alive. There's a chance but, they and can save and her. he said, when he started talking to her and said, We're here, we'll help you, she was flailing her arms around like she was trying to push someone away. At that time in Mexico, Missouri, and even when I was a young child there, the ambulance was not a medical ambulance. It was the hearse from the funeral home that would pick people up and take them to the hospital. It was a hearse that was equipped with, you know, some kinds of, again, this was 1937, so it wasn't like they had advanced medical equipment. I mean, you know, they would have some medical equipment and the people that manned the ambulance were somewhat trained in medical procedures. That's the kind of service that it was. So they rushed her to the hospital. There was a Dr. Coyle that was at the hospital when she arrived. They, of course, tried to save her. But due to the head injuries, the the fractured skull. Excessive blood loss. Excessive blood loss. Lots of blood. There was blood on the sidewalk. There was blood in the driveway from where she was dragged. And, of course, there was a pool of blood where she was laying. After she dies, there's an examination. And what are some of the things we find out about what she went through in cause of death? She was struck three times. She also had been struck about the face. Now, Dr. Coyle insisted repeatedly that the perpetrator did not assault her sexually. So he tried, but he was scared off. And I'll talk about that again in a minute about what they think happened there. Her belongings were scattered along the yard. But again, this was a small town. People showed up as soon as they saw lights and things like that. They trampled the yard so they could find no footprints. Contaminated crime scene. Absolutely. I mean, you know, completely made it so that there was no way. They brought dogs to try to track the person that did this. And 
the dogs couldn't pick up any scents because there were so many scents there. It's still like that in a small town. I mean, it, sometimes we see all kinds of things here in St. Louis, where, where I am now, and we never know what happened. That's the way it is. People gather as soon as they see something like that happen. Now, if I'm a cop, you know, I'm looking at the inner circle first and then expanding out. So is Mr. Mortimer on the radar? Not the way I read the case. I've also requested all the documents. The Mexico police documents burned in a fire, so there's nothing available there. And I've requested the state highway patrol documents, and I'm on my third request now. So I would love to see them, but so far I haven't been able to get anything out of them. And they're supposedly available, but I just haven't been able to get them yet. I cannot see that they did suspect him. This is the thing that I say that is kind of telling about the way things were in 1937 in a small town in Missouri. When Mr. Mortimer was walking home from work, he encountered a very tall, and they've kind of translated very tall to mean around six foot two, black man wearing a cap, a dark cap, and a brown checked coat that came down to his knees. He looked Mr. Mortimer in the eye very boldly, and Mr. Mortimer took notice of him. And that's who they focused upon as far as who committed this act. Because I think it goes without saying that a black man in Mexico, Missouri, would have been not something usual in 1937. He just notices him because he looks directly at him and walks right by him on the street and doesn't cross to the other side or step off the sidewalk for him. So if we look backwards at this crime, and then we'll talk about the investigation. If you look backwards, so you have Mrs. Mortimer and Alma on the same street, and Alma passes her and walks forward, and then here's something. There's no man passing Alma towards no. Mrs. Mortimer. So somebody is to the side, hidden, right? Correct. And Behind a tree, they suspect. We'll go now to the doctor. And what is happening? Was she assaulted? What happened? You know, as far as the reports go, she was not assaulted. She was assaulted physically and violently with what they later discover is a piece of firewood. Hit on the head three times. One of the gashes is like four and a half inches. They're very graphic in these old newspaper stories. Which is so interesting. In a small town, I wouldn't think they would be that graphic. I know. And particularly since you know that the family, this is the paper that the family reads too. So she had been hit across the face as well. Like I said, she had an abrasion above her eye and her eye was swollen and blackened. Her clothes were torn. The way they suspect he got kind of scared away from what he was doing was that the guest in the home had his car parked in front of the house. Mr. Irwin went out to move his car between a quarter of of six and six. And that's about the time they're suspecting that this all happened. You know, judging from Amma's time measurements and when she heard the cries. Mr. Irwin goes out to move his car. He drives it down the street, he turns up the side street, and he goes down the alley to get in the garage. Well, first, he leaves the car pointing north toward the Holdman house with the headlights on. With the car running. With the car running as he gets out to open the gate to get into the yard to go into the garage. He pulls into the yard, still with the lights pointing north, towards this house. He can't get the door open, the garage door open. He has to go in the house, ask the maid to come out and open the garage door for him. She comes out, 
She opens the garage door. He finally gets in, and so the light is gone. They figure that it was this light that scared the perpetrator away. So it was an attempted rape. Right. But it doesn't appear like he had time. Exactly. Did he drop the firewood, the piece of firewood? Yes, he did. And is this a weapon that he found on the scene or was it something that he might have brought with him? They finally traced the piece of firewood, which still had the bark on the outside. It was a white oak piece of firewood with the bark still attached. And they traced it to a wood pile about six blocks away. So he had picked it up somewhere along the way and carried it with him. So there's no mention of the man that Mr. Mortimer saw in the street carrying a piece of firewood. I mean, he had on this long coat. I guess it could have been under that, but there's no mention of that. So there is this firewood pile that's farther away where he got it. It was not from the Holtman home or the Mortimer Rodas home. Well, you would think that he knew where he wanted to go, right? Because she was how far away from her house? How many blocks? She was not even blocks away from her house. She was houses away from her house. So to you, does it make sense that he finds this firewood, he puts it where he thinks he wants to drag her? Because you can't really hold firewood and muffle someone and the Yeah, same I know. He brings her, he knows where he's going, so... And he could know that the house was vacant. I mean, that's one thing. That was a vacant house. Is it obvious? All... Would you think it was obvious that it was Well, I, there's construction going on. Okay. In the house. So I would say that it probably is. And I also think in a small town, if it's someone from that small town, they kind of know what all is going on. Earlier in the year, a woman had been hit with the with a brick in the same block in the back of the head. The irony there, considering, <laughs> I know we're laughing, but of course, considering this town is made works. I also, in my head, thought it was ironic that it took however long to have bricks as pavers in the street. In the streets. Yeah. I know. It is. <laughs> It's crazy. There were two women, a teacher and another woman, that had been approached from the back and hit in the head. But that's all that happened to them. Both of them had screamed and the attacker had vanished at that point. This was in November. In April was one of them. And the other one had been in the year before, in the fall before. So it had been almost a year before. I wonder why he didn't snatch Amma, who came first. Well, that's that's one of the things that they write about. If Amma had come behind Mrs. Mortimer, she probably would have been the one that was snatched. He didn't snatch Amma because Mrs. Mortimer was on her way. And if he snatched her and Mrs. Mortimer heard the scream, she would, might also be able to see something. And there weren't other people on the street? That was dinner time. Wow. And again, that's a time when there weren't tons of cars. So it wasn't like people, you know, would have their cars out. They would be eating. The streets were still dirt. So, I mean, you know, like I said, there just weren't a lot of cars that would be driving around at that time. The doctor has said she was beaten with this uh, stick. So blunt force trauma was her cause of death. Uh Attempted sexual assault, but he was interrupted. 1937, forensics were, I mean, we're not talking about nail scrapings and DNA. And They somehow figured out the various path of her blood, you know, that it was her blood in all these different places. And they saw the drag marks, of course, where he dragged her. Oh, and she had a fractured ankle. And they thought that was from him grasping onto her ankle and dragging dragging her along. God, how horrifying. Oh, 
I mean, you know, I think she must have been unconscious a large part of the time. Oh, yeah, she must have. I bet he hit her really quickly because in order to drag her by the ankle, she weren't unconscious. She, she would have been be fighting and screaming. She would be screaming. Exactly. So he probably gave her a real big hit to the head. Yeah. And then dragged her and then continued. Wow. Right. Okay, so now the cops have a problem, all two of them. Yes, the two that show up. In Mexico, Missouri, have a problem because this is nothing like this has ever happened before. No. Nothing that wasn't war-related has happened in this town before. Right. So they call in the State Highway Patrol and their evidence collection unit to work on things. Sometimes he's called the chief. His name is Castile. Uh, Sometimes he's called Superintendent Castile. Comes and actually sets up a headquarters to work on the investigation from the town. They bring in some police officers from some neighboring towns as well. And it didn't say if they had a particular expertise or what, but there were some other police officers from some other towns. And I would assume it would be something like they do here in St. Louis now called the Major Case Squad, where they gather together, you know, a particular group of police officers to investigate, you know, a heinous crime. And so Superintendent Castile's here. He's kind of heading the investigation at that time. And he is um, the spokesperson from then on. The police chief's name was Robert Baker. And he is kind of second chairing at this point. The other thing they do, and again, I think this is because they believe an African-American is involved. They bring in a man who is interesting in and of himself and is worth having a whole podcast about this man. His name is Ira Cooper. He's a lieutenant in the St. Louis Police Department, the first full-time black detective that they hire. Before Lieutenant Cooper, they would just hire African-Americans when they needed someone to help them investigate a crime. His parents had taught in Audrain County. He was born in Audrain County, which is the county where Mexico is. So he was familiar with the land and with, you know, some of the people that live there. And they had brought Lieutenant Cooper in before. Now, Lieutenant Cooper was an optometrist. He had gone to school and he'd been trained as an optometrist, but he couldn't make any money doing that because no one would come to an African-American doctor at that point. He became a newspaper reporter for a while, an investigative journalist, and the police got to know him from that. He had some big cases in St. Louis that he was involved in. There was a kidnapping amongst the Bush family. It was actually an Orthwine is one of the branches of the Bush family, which is the big beer family here in St. Louis. He worked on the kidnapping in that family. He was given medals time after time after time. Lieutenant Cooper came in and carried on kind of a parallel investigation at the request of Superintendent Castile and Chief Baker. So he was there at the same time. They investigated all of the men who had been released from prison anytime recently, especially anyone that had been convicted of an offense of a sexual nature. Now they're thinking this is probably a local guy, right? No, they are not. And they're concentrating on this idea that it's this large African-American that did this to her. Okay. Ira Cooper had an odd little quirk where he did not keep notes. He kept everything in his head. So that's important. (laughs) They show Mr. Mortimer a picture of a man that they've arrested in a nearby town. Uh, The town's name was Carrollton. And he says, he kind of looks like this man. So they bring this man over. It's not him. 
you know, as soon as he sees him, it's not him. There's a place along the train tracks. Again, this is the depression. A place along the train tracks where hobos, what they called at the time, hobos. <laughs> a very un-PC word. But very, but that's that what it was what called. Said, yeah. <laughs> that's what it was called in the, in the reports, where they went there and investigated there to see if they could find anything out there. And everybody there checked out. Now, two days, it's two days later, they have nothing. In all of the reports that I read, in only one of the reports did they say they were looking beyond this African-American man. There was a family that lived in this little brick house over on the Hardin College campus that used to be the janitor's quarters. The family had been brought to Mexico, an African-American family named Bays from a farming community so that the wife could work for one of the really prominent Mexico citizens. Mrs. Bays worked there. She wanted to move to Mexico because they had two children. One was in elementary school and one was in high school. She wanted them to be able to have an education. The man had been questioned once, just, did you see anything? You know, what what happened? You know, did you hear anything? Was there anything odd about this evening? They, of course, said, no, there wasn't. Well, the next day he went to talk to his wife's boss and he goes, are they going to try to pin this on me? He's not the guy. Who, he is not the guy. Who Mr. Moore- but, you know, here's another African-American man in close proximity and like I said, they've been kind of, they've narrowed that focus. And that's one of the things that bothers me about the whole case. But again, I think it's a, just a shadow of the times. I mean, you know, I think it's, that's what it is. So Mr. Bays goes to- Goes to his wife's boss and says, they've questioned me. They came back and questioned me again for their second time. And they searched our house this time. And he goes, are they going to try to pin this on me? And Mr. Knoll says, no. I don't think they're going to do that. And he goes, I know you're depressed about not having a job. Come and meet with me tomorrow and I will take you and we'll see what we can find. And he was going to try to get him a job on the street crew that I mentioned earlier where they were bricking over the streets. And he's supposed to meet Mr. Noel and he's going to take him and introduce him and, you know, try to fix it up. Mr. Bays does not show up. When the young daughter, who's nine years old, gets home from school, she sees her dad leaned up against the wall sitting in a chair, but the chair's tipped back, leaning against the wall. Mm. And she calls out to him and he doesn't answer. She runs to her mother, who's working, and says, Daddy won't talk to me. Mr. Bays committed suicide. There was a corn- what they call a coroner's inquest into his death, into whether he had a connection and was he killing himself, you know, out of guilt. And it was plainly proven that did not happen. He was always in a certain place where he could be, you know, they could prove where he was that whole evening. He died by suicide, even though he wasn't connected. And are the newspapers at that point printing that he's not connected? They said, does it have a connection? Yeah, of course. And then after the coroner's inquest, they did say, no, no connection was found. So at this point, this is a horrible murder that within... This is two days later that he kills himself. After she dies. After she dies. So three days really after the actual, you know, assault on her. So we're thinking then that Mr. Bay's was already depressed from having... And he's afraid that if he goes back to the farm where he's wishing he could be again, that he he states to Mr. Noel that if he goes back, people will think he's running away to get away from the suspicion. So he feels stuck. Okay, so now we've got one suspect who's dead. Who's dead. He's gone. And they still have not found that man that Mr. Mortimer has been looking for. At first, it's reported that they had her purse. 
they finally find her purse. So we're talking about evidence now. Evidence right? now. A paper boy is taking a shortcut near the home where she was found and where the Rodas's live, and he finds the purse laying in the yard. There's a compact, there's a comb, there's a coin purse with just some loose coins, there's a second coin purse that's attached to the purse. That's it. Well, and she had just bought six silver, silver spoons. They and, did, and, and, and those are missing. The six silver teaspoons are missing. The two things that they pin their hopes on are one, that they will find his blood-stained clothing. And they're pretty sure it's a man simply because of the strength that it had to have taken to cause the injuries. Well, and to drag somebody. And to drag her, yes. And it sounds like an experienced man. If it's the same man, this is the third one that they know of that's been reported to the police. He dragged her in a way that both her shoes fell off. This will be a very short response, I'm sure, from you. But in the order of forensics available, what did they have as evidence? They were looking for fingerprints. If they had found bloodstained clothing, they, you know, they were looking for that. They could not get any fingerprints off of the firewood because the bark was still attached. They were taking fingerprints off of the magazine, but there were so many people that had handled that magazine that they were having you know, no luck at all with that. But they never matched fingerprints to anything. In that time period, you're just really crossing your fingers and hoping that maybe this is the husband of a woman who is going to come to police and say, my husband has been saying this, or my husband came home bloody, or my brother or my neighbor came home soaked in blood. What is the reaction at this point, several days later, of Mr. Mortimer and her parents whom they live with? Is there a public reaction from them? Well, Mr. Mortimer gives an interview about a week later, just about their life. I don't know if he's at that point thinking perhaps people are looking at him askance, you know, like, ah, oh, we haven't found anybody. Who else is it going to be? Yeah. And he gives an interview about their life together. And the things they love to do, they've never had a fight. Oh, well, um, I mean. They've been married 20, they're about to celebrate their 20 year anniversary, you know, and so a, on and so forth. Is that not a red flag to you? <laughs> yes, it was. When I read, I, when I read the little paragraph that said, we've never had a fight, not even a lover's spat, I thought, yeah, right. Oh, I've been married a lot longer than that. <laughs> She's a very patient woman, Mrs. Mortimer. Just to play devil's advocate for Mr. Mortimer, that would be an explanation for why there was no sexual assault. Exactly. It might not be, it might just be a setup on his part to make it look like a sexual assault. Right. We just don't know. And that also might be another reason why Alma wasn't snatched. Obviously, that's not the right person. Right. And he would know probably well, where she's going, right? He would, because she worked at the drugstore. Oh, Mr. Mortimer is a personal friend of the governor, Governor Stark at the time. The state started a reward fund for $300. And that was something they were also relying upon to get information. It never yielded anything. Women did not go out by themselves at night. They did lock their door. They were ultra cautious about anybody, particularly strangers. Again, you know, you always want it to be the stranger, not somebody that you know. And so, yes, they were taking precautions at that point. And people were not even going out on the street much at night. Did anything else happen that was even remotely similar to this? No, no reports after that. Years down the road, they 
suspected a man who was on death row in the state of Washington, that he had been a serial killer. His name was Jake Bird, and perhaps he had spent a number of years in the Midwest, and he could have been the one that committed this murder. But it was eventually discovered that he was in prison at the time that this happened, so it couldn't have been him. That's the only other lead that I read. And, you know, I did all the way up to the present day, of course. So what ends up happening with Mr. Mortimer and the family? Do you know? I do know. And it's actually another interesting story. What happened to Mr. Mortimer? Okay, Mr. Mortimer stayed in Mexico with the family. The parents were elderly and of course they eventually died. He did not remarry. He had some illness along the way. His brother died in 1953, August of 1953. And Mr. Mortimer got on a train to go to his brother's funeral in New York. And nobody heard from him ever again. And the interesting thing about that is there was no report in the newspapers until October that he was missing. And I cannot figure that part out. Hmm. Why there was, you know, why they, there was not more of a hue and cry that, that he was missing. In New York City, he suffered a fatal heart attack on the street. They took him to a hospital called Knickerbocker Hospital. He died at Knickerbocker Hospital and they buried him in Potter's Field. Because they didn't know who he was? He had identification on him. This is, they, there were several editorials about how cruel this whole thing was because he had the identification, you know, he had been in, you know, he was in the hospital and yet they buried him. Somehow his family who still lived in the New York area, in New Jersey, New York area, finally found him and had him disinterred and buried in the family plot in New Jersey. So it's a very tragic ending, of course. If we go back to this case, this officially became a cold case. Yes, very quickly. I mean, within two weeks, it had really stopped being reported in the newspaper. The only thing that was still in the newspaper was every day there was a little box that showed how the reward fund was growing. So what do you think happened? Superintendent Castile at one point said it could be a transient. I don't quite believe it was a transient because it had happened twice before. With like Kind of like a practice is what those two before, they were hit with a brick, yeah. But so somebody throwing a brick or something? No, like, you know, like they would come up behind them and just, you know, hit them with the brick. Like a club almost. Yeah. In those cases, the women screamed and ran off. It seems clear that he did practice runs. Whoever did this, yes. So this is a local, most likely. I th- I personally believe it is. Did he go someplace else and actually was successful at some point for doing this? Well, let me talk about what happened. So Ira Cooper comes back to Mexico to continue the investigation because nothing has happened. And this is over a period of time. I mean, he would come back and reinvestigate it over a period of time. But like I said, he did not keep notes. So he says to the police, I think I may have what's happened. He comes back to St. Louis and he drops dead. (gasps) (laughs) And so nobody knows whatever happened. You have to keep notes. Do, keep a journal. From somebody who who uses an archive constantly, please do keep notes and write and type out letters, don't handwrite them. 
because handwriting is unreliable. I can't imagine that this wasn't discussed over and over and over again. So how come nobody else has come forward and said, hey, I've heard yeah, this? Nobody has. Nobody he ever has. Who? Ira? Uh-huh. Yeah, he was. And actually, I have a friend, her grandfather was it was the editor and the owner of the newspaper. She talked to Ira's son, who now is also deceased. And he said he didn't discuss the cases. He would try to keep all this police work separate from his life. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well maybe somebody listening to this will actually have some kind of information about this case because how incredible and how tragic for this woman. Her family had no closure on this. It's something that's caught me and I just can't let it go either. And yet like I said, I've tried to get further records. You know, I've tried to talk to older people in Mexico and other people in Mexico who might have had parents or grandparents that talked about it. And nobody has any idea. But I'm kind of like you. I, I think they focused in too quickly and too narrowly. Now, If I were writing this as a mystery. It would be the husband? It would be the husband. Is he strong enough to do that, do you think? He was about five foot eleven, and of course, nobody dug up any bad stuff about him. And oh, affairs. he was a paragon. The governor said um, this was the most heinous crime that had ever happened in the state of Missouri. It was a heinous crime, and I feel horrible for the family. And like I said, they had no closure or anything like that. But. I can't believe it was the most heinous crime that had ever happened in the state. Because it happened to a wealthy, affluent white woman. That he knew. That he knew. And they were close friends. You know, he and the husband were close friends. So we don't know. Either this is a stranger who took an opportunity. And And that stranger thing, if the two women before had not been, I would have been perfectly willing to go along with the stranger simply because it was on a rail line that was a time when a lot of people were traveling that way and, you know, could have just jumped off and and committed crime. And then the fact that it was a third time really makes that unlikely as far as I'm concerned. So you think it's somebody that she knew? I do. Somebody she was married what to, maybe. she had? Maybe she had. Had an affair. Maybe she had an affair. And the person, for some reason, wanted to cover that up. I mean, that's another thing that I've thought about, too, is she's 10 years younger than her husband. Very attractive woman. Hmm. Maybe you'll get some more information. I hope soon. I hope. I keep looking. Digging, digging. On the next episode of Wicked Words. His car was found along the side of the canal with his clothes nicely folded and his shoes just resting along the canal bank. They also found a little black book with a hundred names in it. Oh boy. Including notations, most of them women. Yeah. Including notations. Husband works days, only call at night. (laughs) So I think we know where this is going. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. 
The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.